Welcome to Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau. I'm Eric Boll, Director of Public Affairs. We have a special edition of our podcast today. We are going to bring you the audio of our annual panel that we do at our annual meeting on Sunday afternoon. This year we had a panel of experts that was talking about trends in the food economy and agricultural economy. Uh, the, The title of the panel was From Label to Table. We had some wonderful experts that had some very good insights, and I think that you're going to enjoy hearing from them. So if you were not able to make it to that panel, here's your opportunity to hear what those national experts had to say at our annual meeting. Missouri Farm Bureau. Uh, The title of our our session this afternoon, now now I've lost another thing, uh, is From Label to Table, Will Baked Meat, Hemp, and CRISPR Change the Way You Farm? And uh, we have, we have, I cannot imagine that there's going to be another panel at any uh, ag meeting over this winter uh, that will have the, uh, the heps, uh, the uh, academic uh, credentials, the experience in this business and handling these questions uh, more than this one. We're very, very fortunate to have these four uh, people with us today. I, I've got their bios, we'll do that in a little bit. But what I, um, as I visit with them, and, and I, we're going to give them each of them five or six minutes to talk, and then we'll open it up to questions. Uh, those questions will either be from you, or they'll be from me. So you may want to be thinking about questions. It'll go much better if you do it than if I do it. But uh, we've been involved in at least a decade-long discussion about food and what it means to eat and how important it is to have certain kinds of food. And uh, if, if 20 years ago, uh, tennis shoes were the mark of a man, and you had to have Air Jordans, and if 40 years ago, and I'll date myself, a muscle car uh, was the mark of a man. D. John, you remember 442s, and yeah, 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 so and so. Yeah, 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 so when I was 22, uh, the horsepower on your hood is what mattered. Now what we eat, is how we communicate with people around us uh, as to what our values are, uh, how we want to live, how we want other people to live. Um, and it, it, it has changed. Where it used to be fashion, perhaps, uh, cars, uh, maybe even electronics. For a lot of people, it is food. And as farmers, uh, that's extraordinarily important to us because we have to deal with this question. We have to decide. Uh, yeah, the customer is always right, but what if he, she, won't buy the things that are the easiest for us to produce? How do we handle that on our own farms? Uh, how do we approach a market that is rapidly segmenting into uh, not two or three different kinds of consumers, but hundreds? Uh, I'll, I'll go uh, go through quickly through the uh, the bios a little bit, but there is nobody. I will tell you, there's nobody that has dealt with this. Um, on the ground level as uh, public affairs for, a ser- for American Farm Bureau and now the United Soybean Board than Mace Thornton. There's nobody that's trained for it, and those of you that had a chance to, uh, to hear him last night, just as a technical economist, absolutely one of the best in the country, that's John Newton down at the end dealing with the problems that you and I face on our farms. Jason Lutz is the expert on consumer choice. He, did, he, he has, um, for his career, he has 
done lots of what they call experimental economics, which is actually um, a, uh, a, uh, almost a new field of economics. One night, uh, Jason, I'll tell you about 20 years ago, I had dinner with a fellow, and uh, an engaging fellow, we had a good conversation, he was an economist. Two days later, he got a um, Nobel Prize, had dinner with Bernard Smith. Um, he sort of is one of the founders of this field, and a lot of the same thing, kind of research that Dr. Les does, uh, first met Dr. Les at the Oklahoma State University, now he's gone to Purdue. So that should give you some kind of example. Uh, he heads up the economics department at Purdue. Uh, that's a pretty good example of quality work he does. Uh, he, you know, to, he's at the pinnacle of his career at the second uh, best land grant college in the United States. And, uh, I, well, yeah, you deserve first. He, he, got his, he got his doctorate at K-State. <laughs> got his doctorate at K-State. So yeah, that's three. That's right, Mason. I'm going to try to get myself out of trouble. The, <laughs> the Ohio State went to work. <laughs> and Joanne works with USFRA. So, so the United States Farmers and Ranchers Association, all of you are familiar with that. Farm Bureau, uh, Missouri Farm Bureau is an associate member, obviously, American Farm Bureau is a founding member and the first chairman of the board. Uh, was our president at the time, uh, uh, Bob Stallman, and Joanne Regaley is a project manager at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance. This is what they do, this is why they exist, to deal with these issues, to think about these issues. So we're going to open it up for each of them to give about four to five minutes of what's on their mind. It may be about fake meat, uh, maybe about CRISPR, which is an advanced uh, new kind of uh, genetic engineering. And it may be about, I don't know, the Chiefs game, which is going on right now. Thank you all for being here. Uh, but when we get done with that, we'll open it up for questions. And Joanne, I'm gonna just, we'll just go down the line here, and so I'll start with you, so let her rip. All right, um, so my name's Joanne Regali. Like I said, I work at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance. Um, I um, started out in sustainable agriculture when I got grounded as a young girl, and my mom dragged me to a conference, and I realized the power that farmers have and being able to create energy from cow manure. So from that, I went to uh, school and I got my nutrition background. Uh, I'm a dietitian, but please do not ask me for any uh, food advice because I like pieces as, next, as much as the next person. Um, but I am lucky enough that I found a role at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance working in sustainable agriculture and really trying to figure out um, where farmers can lead the conversation in kind of the sustainable agriculture conversation. Um, we believe at USFRA that the next six months is going to be mission critical for the future of sustainable agriculture, and we really need to make a change um, in the minds of consumers and, and in, uh, in the minds of B2B as well and other businesses and how to make a difference. So that's just where I'm gonna start off, so there you go. All right, well, um, as uh, Blake said, I'm uh, Jason Lusk, head of the Agricultural Economics Department at Purdue. I'm gonna be speaking with you all in the morning, so I don't wanna steal too much of my thunder. Um, but just to give you a little bit of background on myself, um, I've spent the last 20 years or so doing research about what it is consumers want to eat and why they want to eat it. And one of the big challenges in this area of research is that consumers will often tell you they want to do one thing on a survey and then turn around and do something entirely different in the grocery store. So trying to understand why people give you these 
this sort of disconnecting uh, messages is, is something that I've spent a fair amount of time studying, and then applying that to the topics often that are very controversial in food and agriculture, whether it's biotechnology, gene editing, we have some recent work on the plant-based and uh, lab-grown uh, meat, so to speak. And I do have to say, um, somewhere along those lines in the middle of that academic research, I read some things that Blake had written, uh, engaging with the public on some of these difficult issues, and that gave me some of the courage to think about how do we translate some of this and engaging with the food consumer. So uh, I know I've probably told you this in person before, but, but Blake, you were, you were sort of a, a leader for me and a, a mentor in that job, and spent you know, the last five or six years trying to do a little bit more public outreach as far as that goes. So I might hold you know, some of my topics uh, till later, but I think Blake is exactly right. And these days, it's not you are what you eat, but it's you eat what you are. And we're, we are fortunate to have the income and the ability to uh, act on our personalities through the food choices we make, because we make enough money that we can choose to do that. And that's, in many ways, a blessing, but it also presents some real challenges, I think, for agricultural producers. Uh, on the topic of biotechnology and GMOs, if I had to summarize uh, many studies on that topic, I'd say the main thing I would tell you about GMOs is that most consumers know next to nothing about GMOs. And yes, if there's a slight level of version initially, but if you just dig a little bit, scratch a little bit beneath the surface, there's just not a lot there. So that's even a, even a harder challenge when we act, uh, ask questions about some nuance about GMOs. Like, What's the difference between gene editing and GMOs? Now you're asking for nuance about something that people don't know that much about to begin with. So it's really a difficult area to study, but happy to talk about that a little more, or some of our work on, on kind of plant-based or, or lab-grown meat alternatives. But I'll, uh, I'll turn it over to you, Mace. Thank you. I remember we started working with you when I was at Farm. I was with Farm Bureau for 34 years. I know you're all shocked. I don't look that old. <laughs> But I remember we worked with a project on a project with you and Bailey um, Norwood. That's right. Yeah, animal welfare. That was about animal welfare. Probably was it 14, 13 years ago, somewhere in there. Probably about right. Yeah. But that was back when you were at Oklahoma State. So I'm glad you moved up to Purdue. <laughs> um, how many soybean producers in the crowd today know that I am working for you? I work for the United Soybean Board. The checkoff that you pay into goes to support research, education, marketing, market development, that kind of work. I have been with the United Soybean Board now for six months. Because I had such a, a vast background, grew up on a farm in Northeast Kansas, a stone's throw from St. Joe, Missouri, uh, I thought I might have known a little bit about soybeans. I tell you what, I was drinking a fire hose for about four months, and I still am to some degree, because the, the soybean is such a complicated, not only a complicated agricultural sector, but the plant itself, the number of uh, things that it can be broken down into. You look at 80% of the soybean coming into the meal side, about 20% going into the uh, oil side. And when you think about the whole debate about protein, meat protein versus plant protein, there is no way you will ever find anyone from the United Sweeping Board talking anything bad about meat in any way, shape, or form. And the reason being is that 80% of our soybean meal, 80, 97% of our soybean meal, which makes up 80% of the value of the soybean, goes into livestock. 
And so we are going to be out there supporting meat production as a protein as much as maybe some of the livestock groups are. However, we are limited to some degree because we cannot advocate, we cannot lobby, but we will be providing information that supports that position. Uh, as we look out across the world, we know that there are a number of countries where sometimes meat is not a choice. There are populations in developing countries where plant protein is the only choice that they have. In those cases, we're going to do everything we can to make sustainable soybeans growing in the United States that choice for those consumers. And whenever there is a choice at home, people who, for some reason or another, do not eat meat, will only eat protein, uh, plant-based protein. The only competitive uh, situation you will see us in is competing against those other plant-based proteins, against the, the, the peas world and whatever else goes into those products. But you will always see us very much being in support of meat production in the livestock industry. And I probably said way too much already. Have the Chiefs scored yet? No, no. I, <laughs> I just appreciate the, the opportunity to be here, and, and I'll follow uh, briefly on, on what May said. How many people raised soybeans by show of hands? How many people raised dairy? Got a couple or two. I see, yeah, I see a couple out there. How many people raised cattle? And so at, at American Farm Bureau, we represent everybody. Uh, we don't just represent soybean producers. We don't just uh, represent dairy farmers and so you know we listen to you and the policies that are developed by you and that guides us in how we engage with with all the different organizations uh, and many times in washington dc when an organization is going to come to us about uh, their issue whether it's on the sustainability front whether it's on the labeling front uh, they come and brief american farm bureau federation first so i go to work every day making sure that we represent the interests of our members across the country, make sure these products are labeled accurately when it's on the sustainability front, make sure that farmers are compensated for some of the sustainability practices that they do. Uh, so I'm just really happy that, that at American Farm Bureau Federation, uh, we have an opportunity to give a voice to all of you in the room when it comes to some of these, these very, very challenging issues. All right, so that's everybody's opening statements. I said that uh, I would let you ask some questions. Well, I'll change my mind. I got some questions to ask. How many of you have ever eaten an Impossible Burger? Alright. You guys alright? So what do you think? What do you think? Have you had one? Yeah. What do you think? Um, it's okay. I'd rather have the real thing, I think. I think I had mine at Burger King, so, um, you know, the toppings really did get you there. Alright. <laughs> I had far and away the best uh, veggie burger that I've ever had. But uh, I think, uh, it, it, I think uh, Julian is right. It depends how much uh, other toppings you have on it. You know, I, if you didn't tell me it was that, I had a lot of ketchup and mustard, pickles and onions and all the rest, you might not be able to tell. But if you look at it closely, there's definitely a difference if you just do a side-by-side -side test. I don't know whether I should be proud to say this or not, but I've never had one. But John Newton tells me they're young. <laughs> I like Why well, throw your buddy under the bus? <laughs> So two stories. Uh, one, uh, the only reason I've ever had an Impossible Burger is, is every year for Lent, I give up meat for, throughout all of Lent. But I love eating a hamburger, so I, I tried the Impossible Burger. 
my house stunk for hours. I never allowed to cook them uh, anymore in the house. Uh, and then I hired a, a livestock economist from Texas. Uh, and he's, he's a diehard cattleman. And, and so as his boss, I made him eat an impossible burger. Uh, so we went to a restaurant. Research. <laughs> we went to a restaurant, ordered the impossible burger. I had my own bacon and cheese, and it was all right. <laughs> I agree. Well, the, good news is, uh, the good news is that tonight's our, uh, our annual banquet. Now you know the menu. <laughs> they didn't really laugh that much. <laughs> Is it now we're not having it's not an election year, is it? Yeah, no, 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 no. So what's what what's our uh, you know I'll ask I'll, I'll direct this question at the economist, and, and I know you may want to be talking about this tomorrow. Two percent of the market, ten percent of the market. Oh my gosh, sell the cows. Well, I think you know it's it's a trend that's not going to go away. I think you're right. The question is, it's not going to be zero, and it's not going to be a hundred. Um, you know, my just, if you may force me to pull a number out of the air 15 years from now, I'd say 15% of the market. I think the real interesting question is, uh, is that, you know, assuming I'm right, 15%, um, are those, those people, that 15%, were those people that were going to buy beef anyway? In other words, are these products stealing market share away from, you know, beef and pork and the rest, or are they bringing consumers into the segment that wouldn't have been there anyway? And some of our research suggests that people most likely to buy these alternatives were people that weren't buying a lot of beef to begin with. So some of this is expanding the size of what you might call the beef market, as opposed to you know stealing folks away that were, were consuming conventional beef. Although there'd be a little bit of that anyway. But um, you know that, that's you forced me to guess. That's my guess. You ready with your questions? I'm going to let you ask them in just a second. Do you draw a distinction? I want to ask Jason one more before I go to John on the on the percentage of the market. Do you draw a distinction between the hamburger sausage substitutes and the steak? Well, so when I said 15, I think of that as just the total size of the market altogether. And, and I didn't give any reasons why I kind of think that. Why is it not bigger? And I think one of the reasons is exactly what you're sort of alluding to. At the moment, nobody's figured out how to make a uh, lab-grown steak or a plant-based steak or plant-based bacon. And uh, so those things are gonna be around for a long time. People still want those products. We're still gonna you know, have a share of the market you know, on the beef side of things too. We, we have a lot of marginal land that's probably not very useful for a lot of other kinds of production. That is, that's one of the blessings about uh, ruminant animals like, uh, like beef is they can take stuff we can't eat and turn it into stuff that's really tasty. And so there's going to be economic reasons we'll have these animals around regardless of sort of, you know, that, that demand side of the market. All right. Jason said the over-under at 15%. I agree with the professor. <laughs> you know, I think, great, let's grow the size of the pie. And I think from our perspective, and again, from your perspective, what we work on is make sure that, that the consumers have accurate information. That when they go to the store, when they read a package label, they know if it's a soy-based product, if it's an almond-based beverage, uh, that's what's more important. And you can't go to a store and pick up a bag of chips that says bacon, very, very big, on the front with an asterisk, and you read at the bottom that it says vegetarian and that there's no pork or bacon products uh, used on, on the, on the, to make the chips. Same thing with a meat product, same thing with a, a beverage. You can't say milk if it's not made from, from a lactating animal. 
So that's that's our primary objective is just let the consumers decide, but make sure that they have full information and aren't misled at, at, the, at the school. All right, so now a question for both Mace and uh, Joanne. You guys, uh, you know, it's mostly PEs that go in that possible burger, but obviously there's some soybean meal in there too. You represent people that grow peas. How are you approaching this issue? Start with your hand. Thanks for the easy one. All right. Um, so I think at USFRA, we're just focused on farmers and ranchers in general. So that really does include all farmers and ranchers. So we're focused on mainly three types of things when it comes to kind of that meat burger conversation, or alternative meat burger conversation. And we're really, instead of focusing on specifically the alternative beef burger, we're more focusing on the kind of finance aspect right now, and then as well as the science aspect. So from a dietitian perspective, um, I think that it doesn't equate the nutrients that a lot of the meat alternatives have. Uh, so that's kind of one argument that we're using. And we do try and represent the entire entirety of um, U.S. farmers and ranchers, but we don't have, I think, an exact stance on meat alternatives right now. So our messaging platform that we've developed right now is called Protein First. And that is based upon the fact that protein is one of the building blocks of nutrition that's important to all humans. And as I said, we are in a very non-competitive, very collaborative stance when it comes to working on the, in regard to working about meat supply and demand with livestock groups. But when it comes time to, uh, talk only about those people who do have a preference for plant-based protein, we are going to be in there as the soybean world competing the heck out of, out of everything we can do uh, against the pea people and the other sources of plant-based protein. John? The only other thing I'd add, we, we often work with these companies when it comes to labeling, but the other issue is to make sure that if it's a, a plant-based product or if it's an organic product, that we're not disparaging conventionally produced products. I think that's that's also very, very important. That's something that we do. Uh, we don't want somebody to get market share on the back of insulting uh, someone else's product. I think uh, one thing I'll point out is a theme across all these answers is these plant-based products are agriculturally based products. And I think one thing that's less clear is if the market grows, there will be opportunities to provide inputs into the production of these processes. And, and my guess is that they may be very uh, specific products that, that they need. And, and you know, the Impossible Burger, one of its supposedly its secret sauce is this genetically engineered yeast that produces a, a protein, an animal-like protein. You know, I don't know what the feedstock to that is. I don't. It's probably a proprietary technology. But if they grow big enough, they're going to need inputs, and they're probably getting very specific kinds of inputs. And so it's a threat, but it's also an opportunity. And when you think about the structure being, of course, those cells that you're growing in that vat take sugar. They're in, you know, we're, we had to change our quotas this year because of the troubles with harvest in the sugar beet country. Where's all that sugar going to come from? Well, I don't know. But, but, but the point is well taken. I do know one thing. There's nobody in this room growing peas that go in impossible burgers. So Missouri Farm Bureau, unlike American Farm Bureau, which has to represent everybody, we're in it. All right. <laughs> Any questions from the audience? All right. Uh, why don't you? Why don't you? We got a microphone over here, right there where Ed, Ed by Ed. We put him by because he's tall. 
And if you got a question, uh, as soon as Keith's done, get right behind him and you can ask the next one. <coughs> We got a couple of guys got some questions. Uh, two, and then I'll sit down. Uh, on the topic, you, you touched on GMOs. And on the topic of GMOs, you mentioned that in a cell culture meeting. Uh, whoever wants to, can you expound down? I do a lot of work on a checkout board, and you know. They'll protest against GMOs and our Roundup Free Soybeans and corn that we are killing the entire world, that they are mining and throwing money at the companies that are developing self-cultured meat, which is the epitome of GMO and protein, number one. And the second question that I'd like you to talk on is as far as uh, on the checkoff side, why Blake keeps hitting at been chewed probably just as much as I have here lately. As the animal and the cattle industry, should we be should we be promoting our product as a, as a positive a positive note, or should we be on the attack against alternative meat products, i.e. the fossil fuel? I'll end there first. Uh, I'd say that's a really interesting. Uh, contrast that you're drawing. It's one of the reasons this is a fun topic to talk about is because it's turning a lot of these conversations on their head. And I think groups like the Farm Bureau often, you know, in the early days of the biotechnology, you know, we were uh, talking a lot about we need to, you know, get people on board with these, you know, GMOs and science and advancement. And, that, and now, actually, you know, beef and pork and chicken producers, one of your biggest selling points is uh, you got one ingredient on your label. <laughs> and, uh, all this other stuff and all this other unnatural stuff that's added. And so, you know, there's some Venn diagram of who is it that's the pro-GMO and is also the, you know, anti-meat. And there's some little overlap, you know, there. But I think the, the biggest thing about these is that, that people, you know, they just don't know much about these products. There's a lot of very positive hype about it. But, you know, I think we're starting to see pushback largely related to the length of the ingredient lists and some of the processes that are used around these. And indeed, the consumer research that we've done suggests there's probably a lot more opposition there than you might suspect given the kind of popular popularity of a lot of these plant-based and lab-based alternatives in the, in the news media. Most people are, in fact, you know, pretty averse to the kind of quote-unquote unnaturalness of, of many of these products. And you don't see that right now because we're sort of in the early stage and a lot of hype that's there, but, but I think the much larger share of the population is concerned about some of those things. All right, next question. Hi, I'm Dr. Mark Robinson. I'm licensed in the state of Missouri as a primary health care physician. And the question I pose to you, which you introduced very briefly, has to do with milk. And the question I have, based on this understanding, milk, no matter whether it's true dairy, which I am a dairy producer also in this state as a grade A, very producer. When it comes to the labeling of the product, milk, when you follow true the Latin definition of what it is, it is from a lactating mammillary mammal. This was argued clear to the, the supreme government and courts of this nation, represented by both sides, whether soy milk, pea milk, hemp milk, 
almond milk, and they were given the privilege of calling it milk, but yet by the Latin definition, it is not. My question to you is, as a dairy producer, and a dairy marketer also, because I am a processor, how would you suggest we label to truly inform the general public of what they're getting? And again, I emphasize, I realize the value being a healthcare practitioner in all these products when concerning public health. So here's the labeling question. Uh, Missouri has gotten a bit of, uh, of attention uh, because of our, uh, our labels uh, requiring only meat to be labeled as meat. Obviously, um, several states are in controversies about dairy, although I think that uh, uh, almond milk has certainly uh, made a tremendous amount of progress. What do you think? What's the best strategy for us? What should we be doing as a farm organization? Sure. Well, what we did at American Farm Bureau, and this may have been uh, about a year ago, we had uh, several state Farm Bureau presidents uh, go and meet with FDA Administrator, Administrator Gottlieb uh, right around the time when he made the comment that, that an almond doesn't lactate. Uh, so we've been very engaged with them. We've been working with National Milk and others uh, to get more appropriate labeling on these products. Uh, but at, at this point in time, I, I don't think consumers are really that confused when they're buying an almond beverage at the store. I don't think they think that it's milk, but you know, this has been something that's 20 years uh, in the making. And I think that's why the, the cattlemen are so uh, actively working now on plant-based meats and cell-based meats so that we don't repeat the past uh, that, that you, you pick up from the dairy industry. So I do want to make note this time, from a patient standpoint, we do not listen. I would just say that as a checkoff organization, this is probably one of those areas where, that we are going to leave to the advocacy organizations like Farm Bureau, working through their policy process, trying to figure out what kind of policies you want in regard to Name the names of those products, uh, but just know that if there is, in my opinion, if there is uh, a point of concern that you have in regard to those drinks, your concern is more than likely not with the soybean industry or any of the other industries, it's with the marketers of those products. So I, um, I think in the case of milk, you know, it's often held out as an example that you know, the meat industries don't don't want to need to be worried about. I don't know what total milk sales are. I think it's like 15 or 20 percent of milk sales are one of the alternatives. You know, that market's a little bit different because there's there's a you know lactose intolerant consumers that you know I don't know what share of the population is that drive some of that. You know, my my view and and you know based on the research we and others have done is that the words, um, the being able to use the word milk or meat probably doesn't matter nearly as much as things like where is this product positioned in the retail space? If it's put next to regular milk or right next to regular meat, people in their minds think, oh, these are, these are sort of more equivalent kinds of products. So things like positioning in the grocery store may well have much more to do with whether people think about it as alternatives than whether they're able to use the, the labels or not. We, we, you know, one of my colleagues has done some research on this and you know, whether they're able to use the word, say, you know, beef or meat or patty, very small differences in terms of, of what it does to consumer market share. Um, now, the flip side of that, I would say, so if, you know, in the case of milk, there really are some substantial um, 
macronutrient di differences. These are some opportunities uh, for advertising and, and labeling things. There's some companies out there like Fair Life that have really been promoting that they've got you know even you know process where they boost the, the, the protein content. So these are opportunities, I think, uh, to, to make a selling point for conventional you know, uh, animal product producers. So I can't comment on policy at all, but I will say that, again, as a dietitian, dairy is far superior when it comes to nutrient profile. And I think it's up to health practitioners and thought leaders of the, alike um, to be able to make sure that they're emphasizing the health benefits, that dairy is far superior over its alternatives. I thank you for the comment. I agree 100%. And I will toss this out for information. Study has shown there are only two mammals producing nutritional value microscopically at the macro level greater than human milk. And that is bears and cows are equal to that. All right. And some days I feel like I'm getting ready to milk a bear. <laughs> All right, Brad, what's on your mind? So I, and I'm probably not the only one that finds this odd. I'm watching TV and I see a Burger King commercial for the Impossible uh, Whopper. And then maybe uh, the next commercial is for a dog food commercial that brags about having real meat. So, <laughs> so what kind of irony is that? That real meat, good for dogs, fake meat, good for humans. What kind of messaging is that to the consumer? What does that say? Uh, about society in general. It's a wacky world that we live in. <laughs> and it is one that is driven by marketers. And I do not consider myself at heart a marketer. I'm more of a strategic communications person. Uh, but marketers, you know, I like to think of them as really despicable people. <laughs> Why don't you look at me so <laughs> I don't know. I apologize, because you're an economist. But you know, that's a little ironic too. That Burger King, you know, that's rolling out these burgers, not you know, not the entity that you always hold hold up in your mind as you know the, the organization that's leading the front on health and environmental issues. Yeah. But I, I will just point out one interesting thing is when you uh, see the advertisements for say the Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat, the word that's used a lot in the marketing is healthy. And that is a word people associate with those products. But you know, we've talked about it before, just in terms of macronutrient contents, there's not a lot of difference. If you look at the quality of the protein, it's probably a, a much you know, higher quality of protein than the animal-based products. But that's the word that's being used to promote those, those products, not um, you know, say it's environmental you know, chops or whatever else. But uh, I find that a little interesting too. That that's, those are the terms of the debate. And then we see it in outlets like a, like a Burger King, which is, you know, I don't often view them as competing on the healthy space, but I do like Burger King, I should say. I'm not, it's not a critique against them. I'm just saying that's not, that's not who I think of when I think of healthy. And it also goes to consumers just really want as much knowledge as they possibly can get, and whatever kind of reaches out to them in the first place, that's what they're going to grab onto. So I think that's another point why it's so important for farmers to be able to tell their stories um, and to be able to really promote their products that they're, um, they're making, producing. Yeah, I have a, it's, a, it's a related question and one of the terms that we mentioned earlier of, of sustainability, um, you know, very much a catch word in the last several years. 
which, which has always struck me a little odd because most of the crops that we raised in Missouri have been raised by humans for at least several millennia of recorded history. And it seems like we spend all of our time working with universities, private researchers, reviewing our own experience, keeping records to be good stewards of both the land and to make our, ourselves economically viable and sustainable. So it seems to me like the fact that we're all still here is proof that what we're doing is, is sustainable. And yet uh, each year we hear, in some cases from, from our industry and our product groups, I'm primarily cotton, also corn, soybean, and rice, that, that we need to be more sustainable. And so, how do we convince consumers that if, cotton, if we've been raising cotton for 5,000 years and my family's been doing it for several hundred, and at what point do we get credit for being sustainable? Um, and you know, what more do we need to do to show them that we are at least as sustainable as someone using organic techniques that were just invented 20 or 30 years ago and really haven't stood the test of time? So to me, and I tell you that sustainability is so important to the soybean checkoffs that one of my colleagues, his title is Vice President of Sustainability. Uh, we are really focused on continuing to push the sustainability uh, quality of U.S. grown soybeans because we know that they are. We know that the productivity level has gone up so much over the past 10, 20 years. We know that everything that is done is governed by our government policies that are tied into the conservation programs. Uh, we can make sure that we have certified soybeans for export that are sustainable so that they can meet the sustainability standards in Europe. Uh, but even so, more than that, I mean, when you talk about sustainability, the other, the other issue that gets thrown in there really quickly is carbon capture, climate change. And as we are working across agriculture, I think organizations such as USFRA, uh, Joanne, not to tee this up for you, but they have really started to bring forth that narrative that is really flipping the script on agriculture, agriculture sustainability, agriculture in regard to being a contributor to climate change, carbon emissions, to where not in, in the too distant future, agriculture will be car carbon negative. So, yeah, so not to, at USFRA, when we talk about trying to become more sustainable, I don't think it's saying that the last many generations before have not been sustainable. I think it's that we're trying to make sure that we're taking steps to make sure that we are as efficient as we possibly can. And when we talk about sustainability, like I said, you know, a lot of times it comes up to carbon as the thing, as the main, you know, thing that comes in your brain. But, Really, when you think about sustainability, you need to think about it in three aspects. You need to think about it economically, you need to think about it environmentally, and you need to think about it socially. So at USFRA, we're working on making sure that we're trying to reconstruct the finance system a little bit in terms of trying to make sure that being as sustainable as possible is actually economic, economically viable, because if it's not economically sustainable, it can never be sustainable, right? Because you won't have a farm next year, or next generation, right? Next is environmentally, so we're just trying to make sure that all the data functions, right? As farmers are collecting data, there kind of is um, an issue making sure that we're, all the data systems that we're putting in are not really talking to each other to make sure that we can be as efficient as possible. So that's another project that we're working on. And then the third is socially. So if consumers, like you said, don't understand that what we're doing is actually sustainable, again, 
what we're doing maybe might not make as much of a difference as we're hoping it to. So trying to change the consumer mindset, thinking that all types of farming and ranching, organic, conventional, regenerative, whatever you want to put the name label on tomorrow, um, is going to be in the consumer mindset. I've got a couple things to add that people mind. One is this topic, as you can tell, is not going away. And, uh, and there's pressure from investment groups, there's pressure from retailers, uh, you know, your question might be, are we going to get paid more to do quote-unquote sustainable practices? It's probably going to be an issue of market access. You won't be able to sell your product unless you can uh, keep some data on sustainability. So that keeping that data on your farm, I mean, that, you know, 10 or 15 years from now, that may just be the price you pay to play, play the game. So it's not going away. Two, um, it's really important that, that groups like this are involved in defining the word sustainability. Somehow this word got out. Uh, and became a lot more than what it really means. And I think you mentioned the word joint efficiency, that somehow productivity got divorced from the conversation of sustainability. We need to remarry these concepts. And it's the reason you, you, you're saying, how did you stay in business all these years? You got more productive. You somehow figured out ways to use uh, the input you had, the land you had, and get more using less. That is the definition of sustainability. So I think being involved in defining the terms that those retailers and regulators want to use is really key. And I think productivity is the cornerstone of productivity. Um, and so that's, you know, that's that's sort of my view on that on that topic. Yeah, yeah we really are trying at USFRA is trying to make sure that the farmers have that voice in that conversation because they really haven't in the past, I think. And it's been driven by these other forces. And we're just making sure that farmer and rancher voices are going to be in those conversations. And I was going to add, when, when as, as Jason said, productivity is very important to point out. When a lot of businesses want to launch a sustainability initiative, they often come to the Farm Bureau first to let us know uh, what they're planning on doing, what they're going to do. Uh, but one of the things that, that we, we started to do over this last uh, year or so is really engage on Capitol Hill more on this issue. We have not been engaging on this issue on Capitol Hill. And President Duvall at uh, the last board meeting said, we're either part of the conversation, you're either at the table or you're the meal. And so agriculture needs to be part of the conversation. Let folks know that we can be part of the solution. And so that's what we're trying to do. And we've got 20 other ag trade associations uh, partnering with us. It's one of the first times or only times I'd say that National Farmers Union and Farm Bureau have come together on an issue. We're working the hill on it. The cotton council's a part of that. Corn growers, soybean association is a part of that. Milk producers, cattlemen, Farmers for a Sustainable Future, and we're going to the Hill educating members of Congress about you know, trying to teach them that agriculture's not starting from zero. When you look at the productivity gains that we've experienced over the last 50 years, we're producing three times as much food in the United States while, while inputs have remained relatively flat. On a per unit basis, carbon emissions are going down in agriculture, and we're trying to make sure that members on Capitol Hill understand that, because what we don't want to happen we want to make sure that anything that happens is voluntary and not mandatory. Because if it comes from the consumers, if it's a market access thing, we just don't want it to be federally mandated on, on farmers and ranchers. And then we also need to find the value proposition. How do we make it economically sustainable so that we don't put our farmers and ranchers out of business trying to serve the, the, the needs of the consumers that don't really understand agriculture to begin with? All right, I got a, oh, I got a lot of questions. I could do this. I, I, I guarantee you, I can sit here and ask questions longer than you can listen, so I'm going to quit, but not yet. So, 
USFRA was formed when? 2011, eight years ago. I, I dated this argument, this food fight that we're having from uh, 10 years ago because uh, in my mind, uh, animal welfare obviously has been an issue for much longer, uh, but, but a tremendous amount of it started with uh, the publication of uh, Michael Pollan's book, which would be closer to 11 years ago now. Um, so, that's, so that's when I dated. And we've, we've been working on these issues, we've been talking about these issues, and yet we still, every item we see in the store has that butterfly symbol on it that says, uh, says it's non-GMO, uh, still issues. There's a huge, I mean, I know that you'll talk about it tomorrow, Jason, a huge disconnect between what people talk about and what they say and what they actually consume. I mean, think about all of us, a few of us, I'm sure, in here are raising non-GMO soybeans, but almost all of us are raising GMO soybeans. We don't have any trouble marketing. We don't have any trouble selling. We're not, we're, we're not charged a discount. Uh, we've got great um, you know, ability to market those in the marketing channels, and yet, if you go to the store, ever you would think nobody would ever eat a GMO. Fairly everybody eats it and never thinks about it. So we haven't. A good friend of mine would say, "We failed. We failed. We haven't been able to convince people of the safety of GMOs." And I think that's true. But on the other hand, we can still sell them, and everybody's eating them. So there's a huge disconnect. So I'll start with you as a representative of USFRA. Have we made any progress at all in agriculture? Have we had any success at all? Uh, in changing hearts and minds. And secondly, does it matter? So I think absolutely we've, we've made dramatic changes. So when USFRA started, we were mainly a consumer-focused um, organization, just trying to speak to as many consumers as we can. And I think it was a little bit rare that a farming ranching organization was just going directly out to consumers. People were asking questions saying, what do you have, what do you need? Tell me what you need in order to be more educated on it. I think now, as the conversation has developed, the trade organizations itself, especially USB, has been able to kind of adopt that practice. And now we're even able to move into that kind of 2.0 version, where we're trying to reach out now to businesses to make sure that they're understanding of these as well, because they have such a dramatic impact. So I think we have made great bounds. Obviously, there's a significant way that we still need to move forward, but I think we have significantly made some changes. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of frustration even trying to deal with some of the things that come out of books like uh, the Encore's Dilemma and whatever the rest. But I think one thing to keep in mind is uh, people care about your industry and they seem to care a lot more about it over the last five to ten years. And in some ways, that's an amazing opportunity. Uh, you know, would you rather be talked about <laughs> than just be working in obscurity? And, uh, and so in some ways, there's never been a better time to be in food and agriculture in the sense that people have never been more interested. Now, they've also maybe never been more uninformed, but uh, it's a real opportunity. And so in the sense that there's a lot of opportunities to engage, um, I, think, I think it's a great place to be. And I've seen over the last five or 10 years, a lot more farmers engaging in the conversation being on social media, yeah, you know, a lot of what we're doing, I'm, I do this too, we talk to, talk to each other, and we'll maybe in our own little echo chamber, but sometimes it leaks out, and uh, journalists that are really interested and really want to know, they know where to find us now, because we're out there at least talking, and, um, and so I, I think there are lots of opportunities to be engaged in these conversations for folks that want to be. What I've called in a lot of presentations that I've made for the past five or 10 years, I've called it the, the perfect storm, which is a big cliche now, right? But if you think about Michael Pollan, and the work that he did on his books, 
the fact of the, the foodie uh, society coming together as kind of an unofficial movement, and then the advent of internet communications, uh, social media communications in particular coming into the fore, and the ability to share information and misinformation with your friends and neighbors, it all kind of came together at once. So that was, to me, something that has really made communicating about food and agriculture a, a huge challenge the past five, six, seven, eight years. And so I'm, I'm glad to have an organization like USFRA in that space. And there are a few others too that are doing that kind of work, uh, having that conversation not only with consumers but also uh, consumer products companies and those who continue. And the, the, maybe one of the most frustrating things is just as we feel we are making progress in one area, again, because of the need for companies to have a market advantage, there will always be a way to try to differentiate, differentiate themselves in the marketplace and come up with reasons how their products are better or better for you. And so that is kind of a moving, a moving screen, so to speak. I would agree that we just need to continue to, to communicate on all of these issues, whether it's the GMO issue, whether it's sustainability. Uh, one of the, the interesting issues that start to emerge more and more, I've actually had uh, this conversation now two or three different times with different businesses. It's not environmental sustainability, it's more about social sustainability. And they wanna know how are the farm workers treated? What kind of living conditions are they in? What kind of wages are you paying them? They want to know that type of information before they want to buy the products downstream. So consumers are just going to want more and more and more information. I think it's important to be very, very good communicators around all of these issues. Sorry, one more note. So I think as farmers, we tend to use the statistic that only 2% of the population here are farmers. And I think at USFR, we're trying to flip that on set a little bit. And if you actually look at the total American workforce, 15% are in food and ag. And if we're able to educate all of them, and then they're telling their friends, that can also make us huge leaps and bounds into making sure that our story is told better. All right, I'm gonna totally change gears here for the last couple of minutes. Uh, when I was a kid, my, uh, my father would, uh, would tease my grandfather, who was born in 1900, about 1947. When a promoter came through the country and talked to my grandfather into planting three acres of Jerusalem artichokes. You guys ever heard of Jerusalem artichokes? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Dad never forgot it. Apropos of nothing, I was driving through Colorado this summer, Julie and I were, we saw these fields, we tried to figure out what it was. Hemp. How much uh, hemp oil can we uh, can we sell? I have no opinion. <laughs> I, I'm the only one up here with tenure, so maybe I should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I'm surprised that you know nobody's marketed you a hemp-based burger, but you know that's that, that'd be the intersection of these things. I, I mean, I think the reality, given the kind of tough economic times, low commodity prices, people are going to be looking for alternatives, and um, and and so that's both a frustrating but also a healthy signal of a good market economy is people trying to look for an extra way to make a buck, and you know hemp looks like one of those. Um, but you know, there's lots of things that have come and gone, whether it's emus or uh, llamas or you know whatever. Um, and you know, my you know my honest assessment is that there you know 
the level of enthusiasm on the production side far outstrips the possible market demand at the moment. So this could be one of those markets that if supply uptakes a little bit, you can see some, we're already starting to see some crashes in the market. So, so the, the, on the hemp side, we're working to make sure that the implementation rules of the farm bill are set up appropriately, the testing procedures of industrial hemp are set up appropriately, interstate commerce works, that you get a crop insurance product built for uh, industrial hemp. And I think we're also working with, uh, through, through some of the lending institutions to make sure that, that the financing is available for some farmers that are growing industrial hemp. Uh, as I understand it, some states that don't allow it yet, lenders won't lend to farmers that, are, that want to grow industrial hemp. So there was a safe act through Congress that was designed to address that issue. So we're just trying to make sure that those farmers that want to have that opportunity uh, have, have all the rules in place to do so. I think also being concerned about the marketplace uh, for those producers, making sure they have a market once they raise that crop. All right, if there are no other questions from the audience, I'm going to turn to each of Owen Cotton. All right. Um, I just have a question about the culture-based, um, uh, cell-based uh, uh, meat substitute. Uh, my understanding is that early on, the uh, energy source for that was uh, both uh, uh, fetal bovine serum and equine serum. So, have you evolved out of that now with these uh, cell-based cultures, or is that still a strong nutritional source that's used? As far as I know, that is still the technology. It's sort of the bottleneck at the book. Uh, it's not the only one, but you know, it's, it's, that product is still not cost competitive. After I think the last every year or so, I hear these companies say we're going to be out, we're going to be out the market this year. <laughs> Y'all heard that for about the last five years, uh, and, and that is one of the big barriers is that uh, being able to find a feedstock that's as nutritionally rich, uh, not just in the nutrients, but in the the hormones and growth hormones you need to get those cells to want to grow, um, trying to replace Mother Nature is pretty tough. So then the idea that uh, people that are eating these cell-based meats are avoiding cruelty to animals, there's still an animal involved in that. Uh, right, right now it's still very definitely an animal-based product. Um, in that, and I really do think you know the real competition for the foreseeable future is not from those products. Uh, but rather from, from the impossible burger type products. That, that's where the competition is going to be for the next several years. All right, thank you all very much. We're going to start with John, give each panelist a minute to close up, and then uh, I'll close it up with a couple of announcements. John? A day and a half. I've had many conversations with you all uh, in the hallways. It's just been a fantastic uh, opportunity, and I will be making sure as soon as I get off stage to text Mary Kay and thank her for starting the Flapjack Breakfast because uh, it was a fantastic event and I just thank you all very much for letting me join your convention. I would just say to all of you who are soybean producers out there and all farmers, uh, thank you very much for continuing to share your stories when you have the opportunity to do so. Uh, having your voices at the table really does make a difference. And for you soybean farmers in particular, I want to let you know that this past year we funded 168 different projects through the soy checkoff, everything from, from uh, market development to research on the ground to develop better soybeans, to find new uses for soybean oil. Uh, one of the things that we are working on right now in a, in a very concerted way 
is looking at high oleic soybean oil and not only the superior qualities it has as a food oil, uh, but the fact that it has a higher point where it begins to smoke in the brine process. So that makes it advantageous for a lot of food service, uh, restaurants, those types of operations. You still can't buy at the store, maybe down the road at some point, but we're also branching out with that to look at industrial applications. Uh, at Iowa State University right now, they're working on asphalt that has high lake sweeping oil in it. They have determined that not only does asphalt uh, with high lake sweeping oil last longer, but it also allows them to recycle in a more efficient way existing asphalt that's already in use. Uh, we also know that for Christmas, if you want to, you can go out onto Amazon and you can actually buy hyaluronic soybean oil motor oil, and you can put it into the stocking of your favorite of your favorite farmer friend. That sounds exciting. <laughs> it's a present. It would be a present for your favorite buddy. <laughs> So I don't think my kids are not going to think that's the coolest <laughs> stocking stuff they ever received. But, um, I, I also want to say thank you all for having me here. Um, I think this organization is really incredible. And the fact that you're all willing to turn out and talk about some of these very difficult issues is really important rather than just sticking your head in the sand. On, uh, uh, on Friday of this coming week, I'm going to be at Indiana's uh, Farm Bureau here in there, my home state. And so it's great to see an organization that has a nationwide rep like this to, to grapple with some of these issues. And, um, and it's important for you to be engaged. I think I'd, you know, if I were to leave you with any encouragement, I'd say, particularly when they involve issues that are a little threatening to your industry, you can defend without being defensive. I know I've probably been a little guilty of that myself sometimes. But you know, look for some of those win-win opportunities. You're in a state that has two big urban centers, St. Louis and Kansas City, you know, what can you do, not just to protect what you're doing, but to work with and send some positive signals to those consumers you care about some of the same things you do. I think there's some win-win opportunities uh, out there, and uh, it's great to see a group like this uh, get together and be engaged in some of these issues. So thanks for being here, and thanks for having me. I echo, it's really good. It's Jason said. Uh, I also really just want to convey my debt of gratitude for all farmers and ranchers, just especially as USFRA is located right outside of St. Louis. So please, if you're ever there, feel free to drop by. And we just really want to make sure that you're positioned fast when it comes to the sustainable agriculture conversation. So please come on by if you're ever there. So thank you. I'd like to thank each of the panelists uh, for an engaging hour, uh, Frank, and a, a fun discussion, or at least I thought it was fun. I hope you all did too. I, know, I think they have a good time. Uh, John is uh, traveling back to D.C. tonight. He's got a flight to catch. Uh, Mace is driving back over to St. Louis. They've got a board meeting tomorrow. Jason will be with us uh, tomorrow morning for a more uh, formal uh, presentation, which I'm very, very excited about. Joanne, of course, will be heading back to St. Louis, I assume, as well. Every, they all may uh, and happen to be here uh, because they think these issues are important and they think it's important that you uh, hear from them and, and they hear from you. Uh, I think we've accomplished that. The banquet is at 5 o'clock. It says 5.30 on your tickets. If you come at 5.30, I will have eaten your dessert. <laughs> Show up at 5. Thank you all very much. Okay, I think Eric will probably grab the media stuff and I can come down in a minute, but you can get